Hi, it's Elise Lunen, host of Pulling the Thread. I'm thrilled to welcome today's guest, my dear friend, Nora McInerney, host of Terrible Things for Asking, the founder of the Hot Young Widows Club. She's also the author of many hilarious and moving books. High schoolers are busy, but no one's too busy to help fight cancer. The Leukemia and Lymphoma Society is looking for their next student visionaries of the year. Could that be your child? High schoolers who participate in the seven-week philanthropic leadership development program gain valuable life skills like project management, communication, financial literacy, and entrepreneurship. Forming strong teams behind them, they fundraise for the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society in honor of a pediatric blood cancer survivor right in their local community. Most importantly, this campaign is an opportunity for high schoolers to engage in meaningful work within their community and make a real impact on the lives of blood cancer patients and their families. Sound like something your child might be interested in? You can learn more about Student Visionaries of the Year or even nominate a student at lls.org slash students. That's lls.org slash students. Hi, it's Elise Lunen, host of Pulling the Thread. On this show, we pull apart the web in which we all live to understand who we are and why we're here. Pulling the Thread is about big questions, why we do what we do, how we can understand our own experiences within a larger spiritual and historical context, the ways in which we might begin to understand ourselves and each other better, and what's required to heal ourselves and our world. I'll be joined in conversation by luminaries and wise elders, those who have laid tracks in their work and lives to help us bring meaning and understanding to a world that often feels chaotic and overwhelming. My hope is that these conversations spark moments of resonance and plant tiny seeds of awareness so that we might all collectively learn and grow. Sometimes it feels like empathy, sympathy, sorrow, grief are scarce resources. Yeah because we certainly treat them like that. And if someone is feeling too much for you, they are not feeling enough for me. If somebody is comforting this person at the funeral because they are weeping the loudest, not because they were closest to this person, but because funerals bring up all kinds of feelings about ourselves, our relationships to other people. I was unhinged at a funeral for my mom's friends, husband, I was supposed to be on my second date with Aaron. Mm. This man died of brain cancer and I was choking, crying, imagining my own dad dying, not knowing that this same disease is growing in the man I'm about to go on a second date with, not knowing that in four years I will be at my dad's funeral, just thinking other things like, and then we're always checking up on each other. Just this is a human thing, right? To check up on each other, to see like how other people are doing it, to like take your eyes off your own paper, to see how you're doing and what kind of attention you're doing or what kind of attention you're getting or all these things, all these comparisons, they all come down to like, does mine count? Yeah. Does mine count? And the thing is they all count and they're all completely different. So says Nora McInerney, one of the brightest lights in my life and a guide to many, many others, thanks to her hit podcast, Terrible Things for Asking. Nora is quick to point out one of the deep and painful ironies of her life, 
which is that she wouldn't be our guide if she hadn't really been through it and lost so much. In the span of a few months, Nora miscarried, her father died from cancer, and her first husband, Aaron, died from geoblastoma when he was 35. Alone, widowed with their baby, Nora began the journey back to life, using this new, deeply unwanted reality as the ground from which to plow a path for the rest of us. A path that's often sad, sometimes hilarious, and always wise. In the early days of her loss, she founded a Facebook group called the Hot Young Widows Club and started a podcast called Terrible Thanks for Asking, which became a meeting ground for other travelers who also found themselves improbably devastated and lost. She also gave an incredible TED Talk, We Don't Move On From Grief, We Move Forward With It. In the intervening years, she remarried, birthed another child, and wrote a roster of hilarious and moving books. It's okay to laugh, crying is okay too, no happy endings, bad vibes only, and more. She also started a company called Feelings & Co. where she attends to all of our messy emotions, the good ones and the bad ones too. Besides the main podcast, she now produces a short daily show, It's Going to Be Okay, and The Terrible Reading Club. Shameless plug, but Nora featured on our best behavior and interviewed me on this show. Nora is one of my favorite conversation partners because she's not afraid to go there and make jokes while doing it. Okay, let's get to our conversation. I loved, I mean, I love all of your books. I love everything that you do. I love, obviously love your podcast and with Bad Vibes Only, not that you don't talk about before times in your other work, but the hilarious insight into your life and your upbringing and the fact that you actually knew the shrink next door. I feel like that was a real mic drop in the middle of your book that I did not see coming. I'm trying to decide whether I should make this into its own podcast episode because I listened to that Wondery podcast, The Shrink Next Door, like anyone did, like a fan of a podcast within two minutes of listening to it, I thought, wow, this is so similar to my boss's therapist when I was in my 20s. And you lived in New York. Yeah. Every boss has a therapist that they tell you all about. Not every boss has a therapist that you go see. (laughs) Right. For what is not therapy at all, but strangely for us, a dinner at Le Cirque or what were the other really fancy ones? Name the fanciest restaurants in New York. Le Bernardin. Yes. That's uh, I think I feel like you were I it think was, it was Le Bernardin. So many. We went to Craft Steak when it was oh. new. We went to what was the other one that was on Madison? One Madison? Yeah. Madison one. Eleven Madison. Eleven Park. Madison Park. There <laughs> Madison ones are just Madison y. Just <laughs> Madison's. Yes, eleven Madison Park with this older man and a bunch of girls in their 20s. I listened to two minutes of that podcast. I realized it's the same guy. And at the 2020 iHeart Music Podcast Awards, which I think was maybe the first one of these awards, I'm not sure, but either one, right before the world shut down, I was out here, went to that show, got an award. Joe Nocera from The Shrink Next Door also got an award. The way I weaved through... 
a crowd to grab this man by the shoulders, turn him around and say, I knew the shrink next door. I know him. And then spilled the story to him was uh, he described it as alarming. And I think that's <laughs> the best way to put it. An assault. An assault <laughs> to the senses and <laughs> to his physicality. He was like, yeah, yeah, sure, 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 sure. Email me. And that is how I got to be on the like post show bonus episode. Oh basically, my God. Was, the most famous thing yeah, you've ever done. Yeah. And I, I always thought that could be a good, a good story. And it had gotten cut from a couple other books, variations on that story. Really? Had gotten cut from other books. And I thought, no, there's a good way no. to tell this. You're like, this is, I'm slamming this down. Anyway, it yeah. was, I was reading your book at a pool last summer before it came out. And just, I got to that story and was dying, laughing and dying that I did not know that this is part of your lore. Part of the lore. And I have to wonder, it's impossible to understand, but thinking about a fantasy in which your life, where you travel down a different path and didn't become the shepherd of young widows everywhere, the patron saint of widows, young widows, where would you be? Do you have any sense? I always think about that. There's two ways that I think about this. One is that I always had this in me, yes. the same drive to create, the same, I've always been an idea factory. I've always been a person who wants to think about how I feel, how it connects to how other people feel, how it connects to the world and talk about it. I was doing this when no one was reading. I was doing this when no one was listening. I was talking about making a podcast in 2009 with my best friend. It was called Best Friend 1 to Best Friend 2. That's what it was called. Because <laughs> we'd call each other and say, Best Friend 1 to Best Friend 2, do you copy? <laughs> just not talking about me. I just want to no. make, I just this, make this clear. About David Gilmore Jr. Okay. <laughs> David Gilmore Jr. I always had this drive to do things even when nobody cared about it. I had a blog. The minute I discovered what a blog was... I was dancing like no one was watching. I was writing like everyone was reading yeah. when no one was reading at all. And I do think it wouldn't have been this, obviously, but it would have been something else. Yeah. And we would still be talking. I truly believe that. Yeah. No, I agree. I think you are the Lunan family. We're stands for people who are listening. My older brother, Ben, who is a book editor and a young, a hot young widow. Possibly one of the hottest. The hottest. Ben is so cute. He is adorable. Oh. That little, you know, little book editor, bird watcher and his little. He's, he's why just, I'm into birds. He's so cute. Mm -hmm. But when Peter died, you were, I thought you met. Did we, he know we you? We had not met. Yeah. We had not met. Yeah. I recognize you can't sort of be everyone's guide to this process, but your work can be. And you really walked Ben through that, the gate, that narrow gate that no one wants to pass through. And what's so amazing about you and your legacy and the work and what you're doing now is the full complexity of what it is to be human as someone who has really lived, right? And you have been in it, you've been through it in a way that most of us pray we won't have those exact circumstances. And yet so many people do, unfortunately. And you're 
also one of the funniest people I know. And so to be able to hold, we don't have many cultural examples of holding all of these simultaneously, simultaneous experiences at once. And I remember after Peter died, it was in San Francisco after he was at his older brother's wedding. So the whole family was there. I flew to San Francisco that morning. I flew with my brother and my dad. My dad arrived later that day back to New York. And we went to see their friends and we were gathering and people were telling jokes and stories and we were laughing and crying. And it was such a beautiful night that might have seemed perverse to anyone watching, but it was like thick with despair. Yeah. Thick. And yet to laugh felt like the only way to actually honor Peter and bring him into the room and to be ourselves with his memory. I don't know, but you are that for all of us. My dad used to say, especially when I would get so sad, I would get so sad all the time in my childhood and my adolescence. And, you know, my grandma died and I was old enough for that to happen. I was like 27, right? My grandma was a very old woman. She had nine kids. My mom was one of the oldest of those kids. So, and it's always sad to lose someone that you love. And I remember my dad saying to me so many things that were very helpful. And one, he said, and he said this also when he was dying, he said, life is for the living and life is for living. And I think the most natural thing in the world is to sort of want to wrap yourself around the sadness. Yeah. And that's good. You do need a period of time with that. And also someone's life is more than just their death. Yes. And Peter had a real life, right? That included hilarious things about him. Oh my God. And about your life together. Yeah. And so did my dad. Right. And so did Aaron. Aaron was the funniest person I knew who could just immediately so quick, so quick. My dad was very dry and quick and very clever. Aaron could just make anyone laugh at all. And the combination of them together was wonderful. But we were laughing. We were laughing like if you could have seen my siblings and I driving to the Mall of America after my dad died in his car, my mom driving, me in the front seat, the other three siblings in the back because my brothers didn't have anything to wear. And we were like, my dad liked a good suit. He liked a well-dressed man. And we were like, you fucking losers. You don't own a belt. You don't own a belt. We have to take you to Nordstrom to get a belt and a suit jacket. And we're walking through and just piling things up. Of course, my sister and I participated, participate, don't need anything ourselves. And we're piling things up to buy for our brothers while simultaneously berating them in the style of our father. We're like looking at them like, do you own socks? Do you have socks? Are they going to be white tube socks? Now we got to buy socks. Now we got, but same thing. If you would have seen us driving down Highway 62 on the way to Mall of America, you would have thought, what a bunch of fun idiots. And if you would have known where we were going and why, you would have thought, what a bunch of nutcases. But it is. It all happens together to me. Yes. It all happens together. And it's not like you were sitting around being like, man, how can we just, 
Isn't it so funny that Peter died? Isn't yeah. that the funniest thing? It's so world? hilarious. Yeah. Like, well, a- and there's this part of life that becomes one about compartmentalizing when in reality, most of us aren't eating our lives off those compartmentalized meal trays. And two, the performance of how we're feeling, which can often feel deeply disconnected, sort of that awareness. And even when no one's watching, definitely when people are watching, you know, when you're in any sort of forum where you're supposed to be expressing your grief in a certain way, but also in private where you have sort of this, I don't know, inner critic or other person who's like, what are you doing? You know, either pick yourself off the floor. I felt a very strange experience, a very strange in the morning experience of Peter because I met Peter when I was 16. He met my brother their first week of college Mm -hmm. and he was my best friend and the more emotionally able brother of between my brother and Peter. So, and my brother was always bird watching and being Ben. And so Peter was my travel partner and since you were 16. Um, since I was 16. And I felt the loss so acutely. But I was, I'm an overfunctioner and I was helping my brother, who was obviously not okay. And it's very interesting, like the hierarchies of grief, who gets to be the most sad. People were sort of like, well, why are you, what is this to you? Yeah. And, and oh, your brother in law? Yeah, not your brother your in law. best friend. Yeah. Not your, like, truly a brother. I think of my sisters in law. I don't think, like, oh, that's my brother's wife. I think yeah. of that's Sibling. my sister. That's yeah. somebody I've known since I was 19. That's yeah. somebody I've known since I was 26. Yeah. But we have these ideas, yeah. too. Like, I'm not a particularly sentimental person sometimes. I mean, this is a terrible thing to say, but she wasn't a very kind woman. But sometimes I'm like, is my grandmother dead? I can't remember. Maybe that's a shocking thing to say. But it's no. not like I I look for every opportunity in which to center myself in grief. And yet I feel like there's a cultural idea of who gets to be sad, how long, obviously, like when you really need to be over it. But don't be too over it. Yeah, don't be too over it. Don't look like you're having too much fun. Right. When is it appropriate to, as a 30-something-year-old haven't find a new life partner because your first life partner is no longer available. Mm-hmm. I mean, you've really lived that. And now you're a person in the public and you gave an incredible TED talk about this, how we don't move on, but we move forward. What do you want to say? I know you say a lot of things, but like, <laughs> when do you, <laughs> but what is that? Oh, I think it's all wanting to know that whatever happens to us counts And I think that's why we want to weigh and measure what happens to other people Mm -hmm. and what they get and what we get. And is it enough? I remember I've always been a person who, to connect to the conversation that we had on my show and about your book, wanted to be good, right? Wanted to be good at things. I wanted to be perceived as good. I wanted to be the best widow I could be, which is... Jackie Kennedy, right? <laughs> All right. Unfortunately, Wisely's laughing. It's because she's seen me. <laughs> she's seen me. I don't have literally any of those qualities. Not a one. 
but damn, I looked good at that funeral. I will say I, I wore a white wool dress. Ooh, beautiful. Nora. Aaron wanted me to wear white. He was very into Michelle Obama at the time, and she had worn a white dress somewhere. And I was pretty ripped from not eating and working out. And he was like, yeah, you, arms out, white. Find something white, arms out. I was like, got it, got it, bud. I wanted to be so good at grief, so good at being a widow. And part of that was like checking up on how I was perceived. Yeah. And being very, I didn't want to be too sad. Some people I could tell wanted me to be sadder. I felt like a zoo animal. Aaron's obituary went viral and I could not stop reading, right? I couldn't stop reading. I was on Twitter at the time. So replies to news stories about it. BuzzFeed comments. Did he write it himself? I'm trying to remember. We wrote it together. We wrote it together. We wrote it together. Okay. And the funniest jokes are his. The funniest jokes are his. He couldn't type. So he we're tight. We love to do things together. He was like my first creative partner, truly. The first person that was like, yeah, like I would have an idea and he would make it into a thing, you know, a poster, a t-shirt, right? It, when this was hard to do, when you had to find a printer, when you couldn't do it all online. And I would read all these comments, right? And some of the 99.9, as they always are, were good to moderate. And then some would be like, my husband died too, who gives a shit? My, my mom also had brain cancer, okay? Where's her fucking news story? And you know what? I got it. I got it. I got that feeling. Of course. Sometimes it feels like empathy, sympathy, sorrow, grief are scarce resources. Yeah because we certainly treat them like that. And if someone is feeling too much for you, they are not feeling enough for me. If somebody is comforting this person at the funeral because they are weeping the loudest, not because they were closest to this person, but because funerals bring up all kinds of feelings about ourselves, our relationships to other people. Yeah. I was unhinged at a funeral for my mom's friends, husband, I was supposed to be on my second date with Aaron. Mm. This man died of brain cancer and I was choking, crying, imagining my own dad dying, not knowing that this same disease is growing in the man I'm about to go on a second date with, not knowing that in wow. four years I will be at my dad's funeral, just thinking other things. like, And then we're always checking up on each other. Just this is a human thing, right? Yeah. To check up on each other, to see like how other people are doing it, to like take your eyes off your own paper, to see how you're doing and what kind of attention you're doing or your what kind of attention you're getting or all these things, all these comparisons, they all come down to like, does mine count? Yeah. Does mine count? And the thing is they all count and they're all completely different. Yeah. They're all completely different. I can't say, you know, do I love when people are like, I know exactly how you feel because, you know, my grandma died. I, did you read the Rob Delaney book? No, I haven't. I like, okay. I, it's there's one of a, those books yeah. that I circle and Here's, circle. I'm going to give you the best part of it, okay? And there's someone who says something. He's like, do you think I give a shit about... I'm going to paraphrase because he said it so much in such a funnier way. But he basically says, you know, oh, your grandpa died? Mm -hmm. <laughs> I give a shit about your grandpa. That's what they're supposed to do. Okay? Yeah. And in fact, if your grandpa has the gall to be walking around alive when my one-year-old's dead... <laughs> Yeah. Like, like what, you know, and of course, does he really feel that way? No. Yeah. No. He just, you know, means like to him, the center of his world, his loss is the biggest. 
to him. Yeah. Peter is the biggest to you and the biggest to Ben in different ways. Yeah. Ben is the one who lost his husband. You lost your Peter. Yeah. Peter's mom lost her Peter. These are all different Peters. Yeah. So uh, this is, I'm the worst person at answering questions, but I do understand that. Yeah. I understand that because I've done it. It is something that I can see in myself sometimes. Yeah. And it is something that I did when Aaron died. That is the darker side yeah. of grief. It's not just like your own sadness, but the, you know, sort of exchange rate to someone else's. Yeah. And then there are so many other factors and it's the, you know, I'm thinking about after Peter died and my parents very practically being like, I wish it, you know, wish it should have been one of us. Like yeah. we don't, we can't exchange lives obviously, but being like, it would, I wish it had been one of us. And I'm sure his parents felt the same and, you know, and I, that's like also perverse, but my dad was like this, that me dying at this point in my life, you know, he's in his seventies or your mom, like that's not a tragedy, right? That's an eventuality, but this is a tragedy. And there's this line in the way that we think about these things. There's like a tipping point also between tragic to too bad to Mm -hmm. wow, lucky. Oh, wow. Lucky. Oh, wow. Lucky in your sleep at a certain age, everything sorted and done. And then to understand our grief within that spectrum and this idea that even when someone gets one of those like, wow, lucky endings, there's still an implication that you're supposed to grieve rather than celebrate. I don't know. Or just be like, this is right. This feels right. This feels right. There's nothing that feels right about Aaron's death. Your dad was too young, but yeah. But if you would have asked me at 20, I'd have been like, yeah, 62 is pretty old. Yeah. You know, and then I'm 31 and my dad's dead. And I'm like, oh, no, I'm, but I'm an, I'm a baby. I'm a baby. Exactly. <laughs> I'm a baby. And I do think even if you're, even if you're ready, right, even if you're, my grandma was ready, right? She had a great goodbye as far as cancer goes. She was like, I'm in my 90s. No, I don't want to do some chemo. You yeah. know, no, thank you. And Still, I think the death of a parent turns everyone into a child again. Yeah, certainly. Yeah. Want to have conversations with incredible thinkers and leaders? Host a podcast. No, seriously, it is such a privilege to be able to sit down with people who stretch my mind every week and share their wisdom and insights with all of you. It's like going back to school and getting my own version of a PhD. So what's another place to learn from some of the most remarkable experts alive today? Masterclass. There are more than 180 masterclass instructors, including experts in leadership, negotiation, writing, and cooking. You can learn from actor Amy Poehler, who teaches improv and performance, Carla Welch, who teaches personal style, Bobby Brown, he teaches how to put on makeup, or Esther Perel, who teaches relational intelligence. Don't miss Esther's recent episode on Pulling the Thread. These instructors become your own personal mentors, helping you gain real-life skills. I use Masterclass, and you should too. There are more than 200 classes to pick from, with new ones added every month. For example, my good friend and former Pulling the Thread guest, Emily Morse, 
teaches about sex and communication. And if there's anyone you want to invite into the bedroom with you and your partner, it's her. Plus, every new membership comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee, so there's no risk. And right now, our listeners will get an additional 15% off an annual membership at masterclass.com slash thread. Get 15% off right now at masterclass.com slash thread. Masterclass.com slash thread. When you and Aaron, when he was alive and next to you and you're co-creating and writing a viral obituary or making merch. Yeah. <laughs> for for literally an audience your, again of none. A whole life. Yeah. But do you still feel him? Do you still all the time. co-create with him? All the time. All the time. Oh my God. I wish he could have lived to see Free Britney. <laughs> you know, th- when I got amazing tickets to the Taylor Swift eras tour night one accidentally first I was locked out. It was a whole saga. I didn't get them. And then I got an email that was like, you have a second chance. I thought I was buying two tickets. So that's another thing. I thought I got a hell of a deal on two tickets. No, I paid through the nose for one row seven seat 13. My two lucky numbers. Mm. That's where I ended up. Who opened Paramore? Who were Aaron's two favorite girls? Besides me and Jenna Lyons, who <laughs> <laughs> he had two framed photos on his desk. Three, he had a signed poster from Taylor Swift from the "You Belong with Me" video. I don't know where that is, and it's driving me crazy. I literally am about to go tear apart the storage unit now that I've thought of that. I can't live without knowing where that is. I'm gonna die. Two, Haley Williams, Taylor Swift. The three of us, I don't know where Jenna Lyons was. She was not in Glendale, Arizona. We were all together on that night. And I was like, I can't believe. And then the song she played, there was, a, there was all these moments, right? There's all these moments where I feel him. I hear him. I know when, even when I'm making a joke that I'm like, I'm stepping into the line Aaron would have said if he was here. Yeah. You know, and he was very, he really liked to be credited for his jokes and sometimes I'll be like, that was, that could have been an Aaron joke, right? You're just giving him the <laughs> like, nod. Like that would have been, he would have said that. Yeah. However, you know, someone said something and I was like, oh my God, Aaron would have died if he hadn't already. <laughs> and I heard myself say it and I was like, that's an Aaron joke. That's an Aaron joke. He wants you to know that was him. That was I love him. It. That was him. Yeah. So I do. And we were together for four years and there are, I can't believe that truly because, and this is the moving forward of it all, right? Is that I still think of us as like on our, on December 3rd, 2021, I was like, wow, we've been married to him for 10 years. You know Mm -hmm. what I mean? And I still think of that as like a real primary relationship in my life. Like yeah. alongside my marriage to Matthew, I polyamory for me couldn't work if they were both alive. I'll tell you that much. There's no way I could care about two <laughs> men's days, thoughts, feelings. It yeah. is easier when one is dead, but I do still think of that as a like as a marriage, as a yeah, continued relationship. Yeah. Well, it makes sense to me. And I think 
a lot of people can relate to that, the intensity or depth of certain relationships compared to the surface nature of others. And so in some, you can sort of amass a lot of memories and a lot of days and still not be as affected by yeah. the intensity that you might experience with someone else. And I feel like now I think about friends who are even myself, like struggling to get over certain breakups or the way that some relationships, even platonic ones or work ones or could be romantic, like dog us, you know, mm -hmm. the people who really stay with you. It's very interesting because I think we have this tendency culturally to pathologize that. And now yeah. it's like, oh, that guy broke up. He was probably a psychopath or maybe you were dealing with a malignant narcissist. I mean, sure. Sure. And Everyone's I'll, a narcissist. Yeah. That, like <laughs> now we have this idea that to like be injured deeply by yeah. the loss of a relationship means that there's a pathological agent. But sometimes there's just an intensity. Yeah. I also think, you know, I'm, I don't know, on the woo-woo meter, mm -hmm. like how much, how many like football fields farther than you I am. But I also think that there are certainly people like where I'm sure you and Aaron have done this before. I could cry because that is exactly how it felt right away. And I wanted it to be like when I met him, it was, and I'd, okay, I'd only had this with guys who I had very friendly flirtations with, right? Where we like, like really got each other on a intellectual humor level yeah. where we could talk about anything. Some of my deepest male friendships, right, were like what I had with Aaron. Yeah. I'd never had a romantic relationship where someone liked me not just like wanted to have sex with me or wanted to like date me, but like liked me. And I was coming out of being in my twenties during the game era. Right. Oh my God. Neil Strauss. <laughs> and then I was a part of a group of girls who were like, I'm going to do that to you. You know? And I literally <laughs> did treat my twenties like no man has a feeling and I don't care about any of you, even if I am also deeply affected by everything you do to me. And I remember it just being so easy with Aaron and me trying to complicate it. Yeah. And saying to him one time, we were at a bar and I was like, are you like sleeping with anyone else? And he was like, he does a spit take, spits his drink into his cup and goes, Jesus Christ. <laughs> he was like, when should I? He's like, you're my girlfriend. And I was like, well, you like, we never like really had, he's like, I'm sorry, do you spend every day with a person and they're not your boyfriend? And I was like, yes, I have done that. Actually, <laughs> I have done that. And I just like wanted him to like be mean to me or something. And he just liked me so much to the point where like, like I started to like myself. I don't think I would have without him. I don't think I would have. And I like when he was gone, I didn't have that lens to look at myself. Like with well, this good person, likes me, then I'm good too. Right. Mm -hmm. And I'm worth something too. That was a huge loss, but no, I felt like I knew Aaron forever and I was there when he died. And that did blow my woo scale a little bit. There were a few moments like that, but I was there when he died and I knew the moment. I didn't need to be told. You don't really usually need to be told, but I was there, we were alone. And I knew that like, he was a part of me. Like I like felt the, like, mm. like that sort of like puzzle click in, you mm. know? 
And I like understood where we were like cosmically, truly like in space Mm. and time where I was like, oh, it's forever. We're forever. You're forever. There's no, like the physical loss is undeniable. It's never as good, right? right? You're like, you sense Peter, right? You feel him in moments. It's not as good as being like, I want to watch this movie with you, right? I want to go to this place with you and hear you say, I want to hold your hand. You know, like I want to, I want to, it's not the same, but it is real. And my dad Mm -hmm. was deeply Catholic. And I remember as he was dying, he was telling me he'd just woken up from a dream where he was in his childhood home and he slid down the banister onto the landing into his mom's arms. And I was like, what do you think it means? I'm like crying, listening to this. And he was like, well, we just never really leave one another. I do think that's true. I really do too. And I think that in this strange, as you just said, like this puzzle piece clicking inside, I don't know that this is true or has to be true because I think there are certain people who are persecuted by people on this plane and they don't want that person inside of them from the other side. But I do think that, yeah, Aaron does. I mean, he lives in all of your work and he lives in you. And it's interesting to think about because I feel Peter acutely a lot of the time. I have conversations with him. I sense him. But I also, as you say, listening to you hear this, it makes so much sense. I don't sense him outside of me, right? It's an Mm -hmm. internal, it's not like he's a phantom at the foot of my bed. And I don't think that I feel him sort of everywhere. I don't think I'm like the focus of his attention necessarily. And in not being able to pick up the phone to call someone or to see someone, you have to, it's a direct line. I can't explain it in any other way except that there's no questioning what they would say because that reality is your reality. Yeah. Yeah. And like Catholics pray to saints too. You know, and when I was younger and my grandpa died and his death was very sudden and he was in his 60s and it was very unexpected. And I remember my dad saying, like, you can pray to your grandpa. I don't even know if that's allowed, but my dad was like, you can pray to him. Yeah. You know, like you can. That's a way that you can like you can tell him things like you can ask him for things. You can do stuff like that. And Aaron was not religious at all. He was not religious. And he watched my dad get last rites, which yes, they've renamed again. They renamed it as something dumb. I was like, no, I'm calling last rites, baby. I'm not, not updating my vocabulary for something I dip in and out of. And Aaron was like, oh, I want that. Mm. You know, I want that, whatever that is, that sort of like ritual, that sort of connection to something beyond yourself and to like other people too, like the other people who are around you or have been around you. But yeah, I do talk to Aaron and I do. You've spent so much time with other people in deep grief and talking about this world and everyone's path is different. There is no tidy package. There's no linear model. All of that has fortunately been debunked as much as it sort of like corrals our sense of certainty or security that we can follow a process and be done with something that will definitely have its way with us in unexpected ways. But is there anything that when you meet another griever, another lost traveler, where you think, okay, this person, you're going to be 
okay. There's that woman who wrote The Grieving Brain, Mary Frances O'Connor. I don't know if you read that book, but there's studies of Japanese mourners. Mm. And she writes about sort of like with loss, the part of it is the physicality of like as map making creatures in this reality structure where we know where the chair is, we know where the couch is. And then you're trying to navigate your life with like a massive part of it missing. It's like you're missing the map. And so she's a scientist, probably an atheist. I'm not sure. But her point was like, for people who think that there's a place that these people go, they did a study, I think, on Japanese people who believe in some sort of liminal space or realm. And then they did just so much better Mm. than people who believe that there's nothing else. And there's just this materialistic realm, not to push spirituality or like my, I don't, what I believe in has no name or context, but do you find that this the people who can somehow find a way to maintain contact do better? And I recognize you're not a research yeah, scientist. Yeah, I don't know. I really don't know. But I can tell you anecdotally from my life and my experience that most people I have met, even if you don't have a faith system, you do believe I've never met a person who's like, yeah, and they died and there's just nothing else and then they're gone. I've never met a person like that. Interesting. I haven't encountered a person like that except for now, my 10-year-old son. When he was two, he was 22 months when Aaron died. And I can, like the veil is thin with children, right? Yes. I would be, we'd be in the living room. Our house is all sort of like connected and... I remember him, he was underneath the dining room table and he said, oh, hi, Papa, and stood up and hit his head on the table. Wow. Because he was standing up to see, like he could, he was looking at the couch where Aaron laid a lot of the time and then he hit his head and he was saying like, oh, Papa, like talking, still talking to Aaron while I'm holding him. I remember being outside and he was standing on this tiny picnic table I had bought saying, oh, hi, Papa. I have this video of him saying, my papa's the clouds, my papa's the grass, my papa's the dirt, just like things that I don't remember saying to him, but I remember feeling as so true and so real, but now my child is 10 and he did go to Lutheran preschool and I've not raised him religiously and he's like, well, heaven's not real, right? And that's like, that's a hard thing for him, right? Well, my dad's not here. Yeah, he's not here, right? He's not here. He's not here. And I have said, you know, all those things like we've like laid in bed and, you know, talked about all these things and cried about all of these things. And, you know, I've said like, I do feel him. Like I I do feel him and it's not the same. And like, it's not as good, right? It's not as good when you're a 10 year old boy. Yeah. You know, of course it isn't. And we were recently on a walk my two most traumatized children. And I went on a walk one evening and I was like, God, isn't this great? Look at us. And then we hear a thud and we hear and a Prius has hit a cat in front of us. Oh God. And I won't describe it except to say the children are screaming. The car stops and I say, you hit a cat. And the guy, you know how Priuses peel. (laughs) He just, off and the kids are crying and everyone's crying and I'm like okay we gotta go we gotta go we gotta go and we were walking home and I was like this is where believing in God would really be helpful (laughs) (laughs) did the cat die 
the cat did not to survive. I was yeah. Like, you know, I'm like Shame. yelling at them. Like, I'm like, you know, my dad would have said, let's say a little prayer for the cat, but can't really do that with you too. Oh my God. And, you know, and they're like, I'm like, I was like, and yeah, sometimes bad stuff just happens, guys. And, you know, you just saw kind of a bad thing. And also that person's not a bad person. They did a bad thing. We don't know. Maybe they've got, you know, maybe it's someone else's car. Maybe they don't, you know, who knows, but that that connects in that believing in anything is usually pretty helpful when something bad happens, yeah. right? Believing in anything, even if it's just people, yeah. even if it's just, no, totally. you know, whatever the universe is. And that it's, it's not something that we'll ever understand that follows no linear logic, as, you know, yeah. our friend Kate would say, like, there's no... Yeah. Reason. There's no reason. You can't say like, you know, well, the good thing about Peter dying. Yeah. yeah. I'd say the best part about that cat getting pancaked in front of us. Well, the upside of not having a dad, you yeah. know, and or of having a dad, but not the dad, right? Because right. Ralph has somebody that he calls Maddie Daddy or Dad or, you know, like he has a dad, but he doesn't have his dad, right. you know, and that's different. You don't need to be seeking out sort of like the sunny side of loss. And I do think sometimes I look at my kids and I think, well, God damn it. The best part about being raised Catholic was I had a place to sort all of that. Yeah. You know? No, totally. Does it definitely give religion is powerful. It certainly creates some order amidst the chaos and structures us all around a common language and vocabulary that off is is cultural it extends beyond just knowing how to use a rosary no and knowing how to use a rosary is so lovely and to say like oh you know your grandpa's dead go grab your rosary yeah you know let's go say these same words that your grandpa said that his grandpa said that his grandpa said yeah over and over Pulling the Thread is sponsored by BetterHelp. Sometimes Max, my oldest, tells me he wants to go in the back of the house and talk. What he means by this is purely the verb. He doesn't want to have a conversation. He wants to talk, to vent and unload, to fill me with factoids. Mom, want to know 40 things about acid rain? But more often, to get things off his chest. It's fascinating to listen to him and what he perceives to be injustices, annoyances, and harms. I recognize that in those moments, he doesn't want advice or for me to higher mind him or for me to justify his own feelings to him, but simply to be a container for the one-sided stream, to just listen. I recognize what he's doing because I do it every week too, in therapy. I was thinking just the other week that it's rare to find someone who will just listen Maybe point out some patterns or hold me accountable when I say something wild. Wait, Elise, pause. Do you really feel that about yourself? Or why do you think you care about this so much? But aside from these moments of intervention when my therapist makes me reflect or feel, I'm doing the talking. And it helps me feel so much freer. Thank God for therapy. This is one of the reasons I'm very excited for therapeutic solutions like BetterHelp. They have licensed therapists who are available worldwide and specialize in depression, anxiety, sleep disturbances, trauma, anger, family conflicts, LGBTQA issues, grief, and self-esteem. 
BetterHelp is online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist, so you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to match with the therapist. If things aren't clicking, you can easily switch to a new therapist anytime. It couldn't be simpler. No waiting rooms, no traffic, no endless searching for the right therapist. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com PTT today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash P-T-T. It's interesting. I mean, one of the things that I think is really hard, I mean, there are a lot of hard parts about religion, but one part is when I think of my own being a person of faith of like a really difficult to define faith, but trusting that there's some other order to this universe and that energy matters, that we're more than this materialist reality. But, and I write about this in the book, it's one of the core tenets is this idea that, you know, whether you believe that Jesus was a real person or you believe that he was half human, half divine, which I think we all are, his point or one of the things that his, what he was actually saying was so beautiful, the way that it's been weaponized to stand for things that he actually didn't believe in is not so great. But he wasn't preaching about a church. He wasn't talking about priests. He wasn't creating intermediaries between the people he was talking to and their direct connection to divine. He wasn't starting an MLM. He was not starting an MLM. There's something to the effect of like two or three people, that's a church. And when you think about getting in touch with ourselves and this idea of confession or even like penance, the original word was metanoia, which was like essentially just not about penance. It was about higher mind, like Mm -hmm. getting above things, getting to, I think, maybe a higher perspective. But when you think about these hard moments and being able to talk to someone, whether it's a dead loved one or God, Jesus, Allah, a dear nature, whatever it is, and being able to sort of be seen in your totality in the way that Aaron saw you and be held and be be held in your wholeness and completeness and goodness is such a beautiful and essential instinct in all of us. And now, you know, I don't believe in telling priests about your sins and, I mean, to each their own, but this idea that you need an intermediary isn't great. But I know some people find a lot of... Some people really love it. Some people love, you know, like a stage and a a script that tells me who's in charge. Yeah. (laughs) You know, who's in charge here. And thank God it's not me. Yeah. Right? Like, you know, thank God there's this other person who can tell me like what I'm supposed to do. I do think that, I do think that sort of set me up for a tough transition into adulthood and into not having religion, honestly. Yeah. I'm like, well, okay, then that? who's in charge? Yeah. Where who's did, in charge? When you did know. you fall away from that just oh, growing up? Yeah. I mean, just slowly. And, you know, it's hard to tell. Like as a kid, I would sit in mass and be like counting the squares in, we had a post-Vatican II church. I didn't love the architecture. 
of it. And I was like, Ugh, yeah, 63, didn't love it. Now I look at it, I'm like, beautiful. I get it, gorgeous. But at the time I was like, Ugh, God, I don't love the colors in the stained glass. I'd be counting like yeah. the stained glass tiles. Then I would be, then I'd be like, I better pay attention because I'm afraid God can tell. And then I was afraid that the priest could see like thought bubbles above my head for a while. But I also loved, like, I loved the rituals. I was an altar boy. We didn't even say altar girl. Amazing. (laughs) So I did that kind of stuff. But I also, like, never really felt it at Easter Mass. And I felt it at Christmas Eve, right, when they really bring it all out. But I could never understand the homily. Never once. I was like, what are you talking about? I don't understand what this is about. You're reading something. You, this man who lives in the house next to the church, is explaining something. I'm not getting it. It's definitely not engaging. The music's not good. The seat is uncomfortable. I totally understand why people love a mega church. Yeah. I get it. I'm like, ooh, stadium seating? A fog machine? Yeah. Audio visual? Yeah. Right? Yeah. Like a, a wild guitar- ride. A sound system? Are you serious? Yeah. Intense a, TED talk, music. a TED talk in the middle, then go out to the gift shop, a literal gift shop. Yeah. With a Starbucks. And there's like on-site amusement for children. On-site amusement for children. Yeah. So I don't know. And then in co- I bet I still went to a Catholic college yeah. on purpose. And I would sometimes go to mass at college on purpose. And when I graduated and I lived with a boyfriend who was also raised Catholic, the first thing I did was like, well, we have to go to this church. We better join this church that's two blocks away. Wow. Like. I just, yeah. It's interesting because going to services in the Jewish services in this Methodist church in Missoula, which is kind of funny, but I could connect to the stories. I could connect to the culture that was being passed down and I could recognize its power. And like, that was interesting to me, but the rest of it in a way is like, not for kids. I sort of don't think you can, that's where I think we get that these more, this idea of morality that can be really pernicious and that we don't have the context in our own lives to interpret. But I think that, faith, and I think about myself, I really had no interest or engagement with any of this until Peter died. And I do think that once you start living, once things start happening, when you're, to quote Richard Rohr, in the second half of your life, where you've hit the floor and bad things have happened that you would never have chosen, then you have the material the fodder to actually understand what some of these stories are about. Yes. And I really did. I think I found my way or myself more interested in that. I started going to a Lutheran church maybe in 2016, 2017. I baptized my second son, Lutheran, my first son, Catholic, because Aaron was like, look, I don't know. Let's just, you know, hedge our bets, baby. I don't know. Let's cover the bases. Let's cover the bases. And also, he also loved the ceremonies. Yeah. He loved them, you know? And it like, it does feel, and it felt powerful to me as a parent to say like, I'm doing this thing. You're wearing the same little dress I wore when I was a baby that my mother, you know, bought for me. And there's a little bit of lace on it from her gown. And, you know, it sort of like does put you into the tradition of a bigger culture too. Yeah. You know, I would say I'm culturally Catholic. I did not feel any of that stuff as a kid, except, you know, I sent my kid to Lutheran preschool, both the little boys. And like, you should hear them talk about like, if you, when they hear Easter's coming, 
cue as a two-year-old was like came home and was like and they stabbed jesus in the side and they <laughs> nailed his and they made him and they laughed at him and they laughed and he died and they killed him and they laughed like just i'm like yeah that is a dark story and he's like losing his mind over it you know he's like it just it's a lot it's a lot for kids. we did stations of the cross like in second grade and i just remember being like once a lot of time on your feet yeah. And two, you're like, holy shit, like this is dark stuff, it you know? Dark. Yeah. And you're like, you're really talking about like torturing a person. And you did this for you and your sins. You confess your sins. You know, they moved it all down. I was I did that in second grade. Yeah. And I got to confession and I said, I have nothing. Yeah. Because well, I have not, I mean, you know, I'm eight, you know, and Father Ken's like, right, but like, have you ever been rude to your parents? And I was like, wow. You know, he's like trying to draw it out of me. I was like, yeah. honestly, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. They passed me, but barely. And then I did confirmation at the same time. We did a twofer confirmation. Wow. Like confirming into your faith. You're eight years old. Right. Like I can't even cross a busy street alone. Right. So. But you're you're deciding what you believe. What I believe and I don't understand it. Yeah. None of these stories make any sense. And then when you do read or you're reintroduced to them as an adult, as I, you know, like they're deeply meaningful and beautiful. And I was talking to my mom the night before Easter and she's like, isn't it so amazing to think like that Jesus didn't even want to die and he just cried, you yeah. know, and his mom was there. And I'm like weeping, like talking about it with my mom. Yeah. And I'm like, yeah, what a sad story, you know? <laughs> yeah. Like, and then even the way that the crucifixion is interpreted, this idea, he never said he died for our sins. That's like a, that's, I think, Augustine. That's fourth century stuff. If anything, I think he was illustrating that, yes, even the son of man, which is what he called himself, not the son of God, the son of man, this half divine, half human guy is fallible and will die, mm. but not, you know, that there is this resurrection event. Anyway, it's, it is a beautiful story, but I think also the way that it's told as sort of this like quite strange and perverse and the programming for kids, at least within the Catholic faith, that we're all depraved and fallen and have to atone for things from birth that were tainted is also not actually really in the Bible. Yeah. And also just not great to hear, right? Yeah. <laughs> like, not the best way to like think about yourself or other people. Weirdly, like that didn't really get in for me. Yeah. Like I was That's like, you yeah. know. Doesn't make sense. I think because probably there's also that inner yeah. knowing where you're like, this doesn't make that sense. That doesn't I make sense. I don't even believe this. Yeah. That doesn't make sense, but yeah. Yeah. I know everyone says that your 20s are supposed to be the best years of your life, but that wasn't the case for me. I kind of hated my 20s or found that decade really hard. Sensing that I was in the dumps and needed a timeout, my late brother-in-law and best friend Peter took me to France one year. Officially, we were going to see and stay with his aunt, but really I think he wanted to cheer me up. We went to the flea markets in the countryside on the weekends where I found a set of very old religious medals. I decided to invest these medals with the belief that everything in my life could shift, and over the following months, things started to move. I kept these medals close and then figured out how to frame them myself. I did this badly, but well enough that they could stay with me ever since. 
When Peter passed away in 2017, these medals became even more precious to me, earning pride of place next to my desk. They're a talisman of luck, yes, and also of Peter. But my poor framing job from 2002 started to fail recently, and so I decided to entrust my medals to FrameBridge to have them framed right. I've been having FrameBridge frame all my family photos for years. You can upload digital prints, and they do a beautiful and speedy job, making them the perfect place for holiday gifts, as my mother-in-law and parents treasure photos of my kids, or at least I convince myself they do, and they confirm this for me. But FrameBridge also takes on objects that are typically expensive and difficult to frame, whether it's menus, tickets, original artwork, personal milestones, hotel keys, keys to your first home, or in my case, medals. You can easily order online at FrameBridge.com or visit one of their 20-plus FrameBridge retail stores. They provide free, secure, prepaid packaging for physical items. They will then frame your piece and ship it to you in days. It's easy, it's affordable, you know exactly what it will cost up front, and they offer every conceivable framing option. Everything I've framed has always looked even better than I expected. Plus, if you're not 100% happy with your piece, they'll make it right. See why FrameBridge has been trusted to frame over 2 million pieces. Visit framebridge.com or a local FrameBridge store to get started and custom frame just about anything. That's framebridge.com. Not to completely switch gears, but as you like, as your umbrella continues to expand in the world, you're a little bit of a sort of safe harbor, I think, for everyone who has a lot of feelings. I know that's the name of your company. (laughs) But when you think about that, because there has to, I'm sure, be a point where you're like, I am more than a widow. I'm more than a person of, who represents grief. I mean, we know this about you. You're also a comic. Anyone who can see Nora live needs to go. Are there points when you're sort of like, can I pass the baton and enter a second chapter of my life where I am not the patron saint of hot Sadness. young widows yeah. and you're like I'm not young I'm not yeah. hot. I mean yeah. like or the patron yeah. saint of sadness yeah the patron saint of sadness yeah I, I think there is like a natural undercurrent to everything that I do where every funny thing I do will always kind of acknowledge that sadness that is yeah. like streaming through me and every sad thing will have those points of levity no matter what. Yeah. No matter what. I'm always going to be Aaron's widow. I don't think it will always be the most interesting thing about me. I think the longer you live with something, you kind of decide. I don't know. You decide and it's decided for you how important that is in different contexts. There was a period in my life where I couldn't meet someone and not have them know that about me. Yeah. I really couldn't. I couldn't bear it. You know, like you you needed to know if you met me that like my husband was dead. I'm married to this guy, but there's another one. <laughs> and like, and he is dead. And that is a part of me. And it always will be. But it's not always the headline. It's not always the headline in every situation. And I do think even like reading my earlier books listening to the very, very early episodes of the podcast 
like there's always been more. Yeah. There's always been more and there always will be more. And that was the catalyst to get me working outside yeah. of a cubicle. It really was. Like there's yeah. no denying that. That's not the only thing yeah. that could have done it. It's not the only thing that I was going to do. I a long time ago, back when this that was the only thing, the only thing, right? Was that book, that first book and the first episodes of this podcast, someone said, oh, there's just so much more. Yeah. Like, and there's so much more you're going to do. And I was almost like defensive about what I had already done or already made. Right. And I don't think they were saying like, oh, we're sick of it. You know, let's move along. Yeah. Let's move along. But I do think that they were offering me that for my own sake. Yeah. It's interesting to think about, and I, I have friends who have taken, who are very closely identified now with really important issues. And it becomes so defining in a way that at a certain point they're like, can I be anything other than this thing? And what's interesting, I'm thinking of Lynn Twist, who writes about this idea of whenever you're engaging in the world, are you taking a position or are you taking a stand? Mm -hmm. And the difference between positions implying directions, you're for something, you're against something, you are something, you're not something, and then a stand, which is this higher perspective of being open, not only to movement, but like some bigger, higher goal in mind where you're standing, I stand for human rights equity, empathy, you know, a more sane culture. And there are positions that are part of that, but I am not just against this, right? And I think of you, knowingly or not, as it's, you can't really take a position about being a widow, but about being about a stand. You're taking a stand. And in a very powerful way in our culture that I think allows evolution as you get a wider and wider perspective, the more that you live, which is you're taking a stand for all of it and the importance of the full human experience and the reality of our lives. And you're a bulwark against a culture that would insist that we try to be happy at all costs all the time, that that can be engineered. I don't even, I don't even like that word. Which word? Happy. I know. I have described myself as happy-ish. Yeah. You know, I've used that like we have a happy-ish holidays event that we do every year. Yeah. Because it's like, I tried so hard for so long to kind of be a different kind of person too. I wouldn't have been able to say the word depression, right? Or even anxiety when I was young or in my twenties or, you know, I literally didn't go to therapy till after Aaron died. That's not probably abnormal, right? Maybe, but it's like, I don't know. Like I just went through all that stuff like with him and didn't right. even think, you know, at no point do I remember, it doesn't mean it didn't happen. I don't remember anyone in the medical sphere that surrounded us being like, you okay? Yeah. Do you need an Ativan? Right. You know? Like I did. Yeah. I did. I don't love the word happy either because it does kind of imply a destination. Yeah. And all of the sort of 
work, hacks, tips, optimizing. tricks, the optimizing. I don't want to optimize. Yeah. I don't want to optimize. I want to be as inefficient as possible. I want to be steady state. Yeah. A, I want to be a person, not a brand. And I think that is why like people have had all kinds of experiences with me and my work. You're not going to find my work or my Instagram and be like, wow, I know exactly what I'm looking at. Right. You know, you're going to be like, wait, what? Like, yeah. <laughs> like there's some sad stuff. And then there's also like, you know, a rating of Maybelline lipsticks. Right. <laughs> Cause I really am just trying to be a person in the world. Yeah. Well, and I think that there's so much joy. I love the word joy. And I feel like there's so much joy in so much of your work and joy to me Whereas it feels like happiness, at least how it's projected onto us culturally, is something that can be engineered, et cetera. Whereas joy is just that laugh that escapes, that sort of the, you can't, it's not contrived, you can't force it, it's fleeting. Yeah. And you know it when you feel it, but it's not going to be conditioned, corralled, or demanded. And happiness to me, like the corollary is functioning. Yeah. You know? Or numb. Yeah. Or placid. Yeah, joy is so active. It's like a hummingbird. It's like when you said that, the fleetingness, I was like imagining like a mirror ball. Yeah. You know? And like when something, when like the light catches something and it just sort of refracts all over and you're like, oh, we saw it. You know, oh, we had it. So wait, this, not to go back, but did you go to the Taylor Swift concert by yourself? I did. Is that how you like to go? I didn't go intentionally by myself. I literally thought I had two tickets till I got to the gate. (laughs) So who did you invite? And then I, well, all day I was like, I don't know who to go with. Like I wanted to bring Ralph. Thank God I didn't. But I, but he has so sensory nightmare for that kid. Right. Even with like earplugs and these headphones over. No. Too many people, too many crowds, very loud, even with earplugs, which I always wear. So I brought my, it happened that my, one of my best friends from growing up was in town visiting her in-laws in Phoenix. And I said, I have two tickets. And she was like, awesome. I go pick her up. We drive all the way there. We have like this beautiful heart to heart conversation. We've cried. We've left. It's 45 minutes in the car. We park, we walk up there. I'm like, I have one ticket. And she goes, I'm not shocked. We've been through worse. We passed an Olive Garden a mile back. I'm going to walk over there, have a glass of wine, take an Uber home, have fun, and kisses me goodbye. Oh, my God. What a friend. A hero. She she was like, we've been through versions of this numerous times, and we have. But this was like the equivalent of like getting, like going to a club in your 20s and being like, look, they said I can, only I can go in. (laughs) She's like, I'm going to fine dine. Down the street, she's that like, Olive Garden, House Red is amazing. She's like, I'm going to get myself a salad. I'm gonna, she's like, this is still a great night for me. She's like, on what are replenishing bread, breadsticks? Yes. On a, yeah, never-ending breadsticks never ending and breadsticks. salad. And, and isn't it a salad bar? It's a No, it's a bowl. It's a, oh. one, it's a glass-ish bowl that's like, you know the printed glass where it's like stamped glass? Yes. Like textured glass yes. on the outside. Sort of like resembles leaves really itself. Durable. Yeah. Yes. And with tongs. And never get the dressing on the side. It's yeah. a crime. You need that it is tossed a delicious in there. salad. All iceberg, yeah. which is the greatest of the lettuces. And 
yes, I brought her. And then I didn't. And she's like, well, in all fairness, you did say you'd bring me to the concert, not in. (laughs) It's like, thank God I didn't have to like miss it because I brought a kid. Right. You know? Oh, yeah. And only had one ticket. Yeah. That would have been, I don't know what I would have done. I would have missed the show. It was a beautiful show. Mm. So, no. But I do, I like to go to stuff alone if I can. Yeah. And have that communion. Yeah. And then the second night I went with my best friend, Dave, best friend, one to best friend too. He flew down and oh, went the second you night. went two nights in a row. He got me those tickets for my 40th birthday, not knowing that I had gotten the one ticket. Cause all he saw was me crying alone and be like, I didn't even get a ticket. Like, oh, what a, what a friend. What a friend. Yeah. He was like, yeah, you can take anyone you want. I was like, you mean you? Yeah. Like that's, if you get seven tickets, it's me and you we're yeah. going together. I'm sure he was. Was he thrilled that you asked? Yeah, the week before he was like, oh, shit. Okay. Yeah, I guess I'll be down. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. So this conversation with Nora is the second ever on pulling the thread that I did in person. And it's funny because when I co-hosted a show before, I did almost every single episode, save for maybe one or two until COVID in person. And I couldn't imagine ever doing it any other way. And I've become so used to just sitting in my bedroom interviewing people. But I have to say to be with Nora, both because I've known her for years without ever actually meeting her. I went to her show in LA, but we didn't get a chance to actually physically meet. It was such a pleasure because she is one of those rare people who her insides match the the outsides, if that makes sense. And I hope that you could feel the energy in the room and how emotional it felt at times. Anyway, I hope you love her as much as I do. If you liked today's episode, please rate and review and tell a friend. You can find show notes and full transcripts of the episodes at elisalunan.com. While there, please sign up for my Substack. I send a short note every Wednesday about topics that are aligned with this show and a deeper dive most Sundays. Or follow me on Instagram at Elise Lunan. And finally, if you haven't already, please consider picking up a copy of my New York Times bestselling book, On Our Best Behavior, The Seven Deadly Sins and the Price Women Pay to Be Good available wherever you get your books. It's an exploration of how women have been conditioned for goodness, men for power, and all the ways we've been programmed to police ourselves and each other according to these cultural ideas of what it is to be a good woman. I'd also like to give a huge thank you to my sponsors who make this show possible. Please support them the way they support this podcast. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studio, If you enjoyed this episode, please listen, rate, review, and follow Pulling the Thread. Available now for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Odyssey, or wherever you get your podcasts. I want to give a shout out to Phil Svitek, Lauren LaGrasso, Mary-Kate McDonough, Ali Brockman, and the entire Cadence 13 team for producing these episodes, and to Valero Duvall for my key art. Take care of yourselves. I'll see you next week.